a lot of actors were out within the industry. Uh, some, I think, were never in the closet, uh, you know, because musical theater historically was this space that was queer friendly and where you could live a life that was out as as much as it was possible to do so. And it was one of the few industries where that was acceptable uh, you know, from the mid 20th century on, and maybe even a little earlier. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode ad free? Head on over to our Patreon, where you will get this episode and all of our episodes ad free. And you can see our video episode, including this one right now, where you'll see my beautiful face and the guest's beautiful face. Who doesn't love that? And I am so excited to announce that all of you can get a one-week free trial on our Patreon. Join the ITBR professor level and you unlock all of Mary's True Crime and Academia Patreon episodes, our rewatch show, including Queer as Folk and Smash. You can even listen to us dissect Scream and The Exorcist. And I heard, rumor has it, that we have an upcoming Britney Spears episode a Fall of the House of Usher episode, and yes, even a Saltburn episode, which is going to be quite riveting. So head to patreon.com backslash ivory tower boiler room, join the one week free trial and see what you're missing out on. And while you're at it, please follow us on Instagram and TikTok at ivory tower boiler room, rate, follow, and subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Thanks so much, and I hope that you enjoy all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm always happy to have a theater, musical theater, especially conversation. And if you are a theater fan, you're going to absolutely love the following guest. I am joined with Ryan Donovan, who is assistant professor of theater studies at Duke University. His first book, which we're going to go into both of his books, but his first one is called Broadway Bodies, A Critical History of Conformity, published by Oxford University Press. It examines the body politics of casting Broadway musicals in the five decades beginning in 1970. And then his second book, which was just released this summer, is called Queer Approaches in Musical Theater, commissioned by Bloomsbury and Methuen Drama as part of the inaugural cohort of the new series called Topics in Musical Theater. And he also co-edited the recent collection of the Rutledge Companion to Musical Theater. He's appeared on NPR's The Takeaway, WMYC, Morning Edition, several podcasts, including this one now. He can add the Ivory Tower Boiler Room to his resume. And he's been in the pages of the LA Times and Teen Vogue. So hello, Ryan. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hi, thank you. Oh, we've got <laughs> my dog saying hi, too. Yeah. yeah, I love that. We have a dog co-host here. Yeah. Um, so you were telling me before I hit record that you're visiting a uh, New York City right now, even though, you know, you're at Duke, but you can go easily back and forth from North Carolina to New York City. I was curious how your journey to Manhattan began. Like, why were you so drawn to the city? I was always drawn to New York from a really early age. And 
on the one hand, I can say, yes, it was Broadway that did that. And on the other, it was really just the city itself. I always wanted to be here. And uh, my uh, my stepmom tells this story that when I was like 16, we came to New York and you know, I grew up in a small town in Maryland, and yet I knew my way around New York City better than any of the adults we were with. And I'm, you know, shepherding them around Manhattan and uh, telling them, you guys wait in the hotel room. I'm going to go to the stage door and get Betty Buckley's autograph. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just was always, always drawn to New York and, um, you know, growing up about four hours away from the city meant that it was you know quasi accessible to me so uh it's uh you know just been the the kind of center of my adult life uh on purpose I mean I built it that way <laughs> were you seeing Betty Buckley in Sunset Boulevard um I'm uh, unfortunately no I did not uh but that's when she was in it and I you know got her to sign a cd booklet or something I did oh. I did try to see her in it, but um, another time her understudy was on because she was out for some reason. So um, I didn't get to see any of the great ladies in that part, but I do I do really want to get to London to see the current revival by Jamie Lloyd starring Nicole Scherzinger. Yeah, I um, definitely hope it comes to Broadway. I think it will. Um, She's wonderful. And I've always said everyone discounted her when she was in the Pussycat Dolls. But those songs were some of the best pop songs, in my opinion. Um, you know, you could be flirty and uh, own your body and also be an incredible talent. I mean, yeah. I think that's how people make it in the pop world. They have to have organic talent for the most part. Um, so... Okay, so you're in New York City, you're in the 90s. Betty Buckley, first I message her, Brian, and she knows our podcast because oh. I've had many Carrie musical conversations oh, here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Betty is the loveliest. She's gonna be so happy that you're, you know, she'll be like, <laughs> Oh, I maybe remember this, you know, guy, young guy who I signed his musical booklet. Um, yeah, <laughs> I doubt it, but uh I'm a big fan of hers, so. <laughs> well, so I am curious, you told me that you were training to be a dancer, like what kind of dancer, ballet, modern? Uh, I mean, I studied all different forms, mostly ballet and jazz and modern and a little bit of tap. But, you know, I dabbled in lots of other things as a as a young student. And um, I I was I left my hometown of in Chesapeake Beach, Maryland, and went to um, to study dance in college. And I, I did that at a couple of different conservatories. I just never really found the right place. And so after my sophomore year, I said, I'm just gonna move to New York and figure it out. And and that's what I did. And then I, I, I was, you know, like a lot of young kids who are fresh to New York, I started taking classes at Steps and Broadway Dance Center and, um, through that and through uh, other other connections, I, I found a couple really great ballet teachers. And then I just devoted myself to that, even though I was never going to be a ballet dancer, it was too late for me. And I started dancing too late. And uh, 
it just wasn't in the cards with my body and everything, but I knew that ballet is the foundation of, of jazz dance. And so uh, one of the foundations of jazz dance. And so I, I just needed to, to stay true to that. And so, you know, I'd go to ballet class five days a week. Sometimes I'd throw in a jazz class and then I was just auditioning and, and failing and failing and failing at auditioning until I started to, to fail better and um, figure out how to do that because that's a completely different skill than performing. And um, that was, that was my journey for a long time. Uh, just, you know, getting up, going to auditions, going to class, waiting tables, doing odd jobs. Uh, you know, I, I did all of those stereotypical things that young performers do uh, while they're trying to make it and were you also doing acting and vocal lessons at this? Like, were you a triple threat? Uh, I tried to be. <laughs> uh, I was taking uh, voice lessons and I, I had a brief stint in San Francisco and I studied acting out there at American Conservatory Theater. And um, I started doing shows the during the time I lived out there and then came back to New York and started booking jobs here, at, you know, doing regional gigs and got into the union um and you know so things are going along okay you know i'm booking some some good jobs working at good theaters and you know then um the, in your late 20s age 30 starts to loom large especially as a dancer where you know you have a limited shelf life and so as that started approaching i, I really started to think well what else what else can I do with my life that um, is is something that I'm really passionate about? And um, so I thought I was, I actually thought I was going to become a social worker. And uh, at the time I was, I was volunteering as a helpline counselor at the Trevor Project and I loved it. And you just have this immediate impact on one person's life in a really profound way. And that was really meaningful to me. And so I, I was deciding, do I want to get a PhD in theater or do I want to go get an MSW? And I was reading all of these articles that were true saying, don't get a PhD in the humanities. It's very hard to get a job, uh, you know, and that's only, I think, more true now than it was in what, 2010. And so I, I applied to social work school and they all basically said, you don't have enough experience, come back later. And so then I thought, well, actually what I really, what, what I really want to do is do the PhD in theater. And so that's what I did. And luckily I got into my first choice program, which was the, uh, the CUNY graduate centers program. And, um, so I started that in 2011 and finished in 2019 and, um, you know, graduated kind of right into the pandemic. And, uh, but, you know, I was very persistent about, uh, you know, still working as if I was uh, on the tenure track somewhere. So I, I spent that COVID year um, grateful that I had, a contract to turn my dissertation into a book. And so that got me out of bed every day and was uh, helped me stay sane and focused um, at such a, an otherwise terrible time. 
So, uh, and along that, along, alongside that, uh, that time, there became a job, a one-year position open at Duke and a, a mentor of mine said, oh, well, your job is just to apply for that. Whether you think you want to go to North Carolina or not, uh, just apply for that job. And I did, not thinking that I would even get an interview, you know, just because that was kind of my experience on the job market in the U.S. And um, then I got an interview over Zoom. And then a couple of days later, they offered me the job. And then once I'm there, uh, I was very fortunate to have my position converted to full-time um, during my first semester. So, uh, you know, I feel like I have one of those um, success stories in academia, but it, it came about, uh, you know, with a lot of persistence and then just showing up and, you know, saying yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I wanted to ask because um, I'm a public scholar. I am not in the academic job. I have been in the academic job market, but it just frustrated me and made me really upset. Yeah. And these kind of conversations are actually the hardest for me because I feel like I always have to defend myself and it makes me start to close up inside like a clamshell. Yeah. And be like, but this is what I do. That's what I do. I've proven myself this way and that way. And like, I don't want to do that right now. And I feel like it is very connected to the theater industry where you're always auditioning. And like, I have a background in musical theater and I feel that this is where you can use that knowledge of being a freelancer. And in academia, people don't think of themselves as freelancers, but you really are like a lot of yeah. contracts right now are not long-term tenure has been basically wiped away for the young generation. Yeah. So it's a, uh, yeah. it was a real eye opener. I think for me writing my book about casting while I was on the job hunt, because, you know, in a sense, my, my time as a performer totally prepared me for all of the rejection and, you know, that you need to go to, you know, 50 auditions before you get one job, you know, some people it's more, some people it's less, um, you know, you'd always hear those stories about someone who got their first Broadway show at their very first audition or something. And, you know, they will fill you with jealousy <laughs> as a performer, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's a lot of it's, is luck. It's a lottery. It's, it's inequitable. It's all of the, it's all of the bad things. And yet, um, you know, it, it's timing and, it, you know, that everyone, uh, everybody's got something to offer and is talented and smart. And, you know, if you've gone all the way to earn the PhD, you clearly have the goods and it's just, uh, you know, there's so many intangibles like being a performer. So, you know, I think those of us with theater backgrounds are uh, somewhat, uh, I don't want to say hardened, so I'll say we're prepared for that um, that experience in a in a way. But it, you know, it's still hard. I mean, I I I just still sometimes can't believe that it happened for me. You know, because uh, I couldn't get couldn't get arrested um, in the academy for a few years, and you know, uh, it's just 
but I kept working. Like I said, I kept working as if. Um, so, uh, I, you know, that won't work for everybody and you, there's no guarantee it would have worked for me, but, um, you know, I think, yeah. I think that, but there's, there's many valid paths to, to use the PhD. So, uh, certainly being in the academy is not the only one that's valued any longer or even yeah. the one that's useful <laughs> necessarily for everybody. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was going to say is I feel like a lot of it is, and this isn't about you, Ryan, and I don't want to like, but I feel it does connect to the work that you do in theater, which is, um, how there's the heightened ivory tower ish um broadway and the great white way and like that's seen as the most emblematic of who you are as a performer while we have such incredible talent off broadway in greenwich village or the east village or in regional theater like i had stacy wolf here on the show and she's wonderful and talks yeah. Her whole work is about looking outside of Broadway and regional theaters. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way with academia. Like, why does it matter if you're at such and such institution teaching? It's almost like having a designer handbag. Like, okay, so what? Who are you? What's your yeah. authenticity? What do you bring? Like, you're not hiding. You can't hide behind the facade of a school. And right. I mean, that's my own view is I think sometimes people see each other's value in materialistic terms and labels instead of actually the work and the effort and the ambition. And, you know, my whole feeling was, well, I have clients and I'm an entrepreneur and I like my own schedule and why not create a small business out of this right Brilliant. now? Brilliant. I think that's great. You know, but like not everyone, I'm not recommending everyone yeah. needs to be an entrepreneur because that's very tough. Well, not everyone is willing to take that risk either or has the skills to make that happen. So, you know, if you can, I think that's rare and, you know, that's that's worth celebrating. Yeah, well, and I feel like it's a way to, like us being academics, being an academic, I'm so glad you said it, is not tied to a university. Being an academic, is an ethos that we carry in whatever institution and work that we do every day. And, you know, I think what I love in your work is you're bringing so much to the public. And I was curious, like we had mentioned in passing Betty Buckley, but I do wonder because you are writing so much about critiquing, right? You're not a, you're, you're not Jesse Green, who again, I've had on the show, who is also wonderful, but you're not Jesse Green, who is doing reviews of current productions. And he like has all these feelings about, you can't get too close to the cast. Like it can affect and buy, be a bias of how he views a performance. And he actually wouldn't be able to review a friend's musical or play. Um, so you're not necessarily that kind of reviewer, but you are critiquing how bodies are displayed on Broadway or off Broadway. Um, you know, what hasn't gone well in LGBTQ culture and narrative. So like, do you feel that you have to be careful about who you befriend and how close you get to certain people in the industry?
Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. And when I'm not here on the podcast, I am consulting with small businesses, undergraduate students, graduate students, podcasters, and those in media. So if you're curious about the work that I've done with my consultation services, you could just type me in on Google, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and you'll see a few reviews pop up. I've worked on college admission essays for undergraduate students. I've revamped and expanded a small business's social media marketing campaign right here in Port Jefferson, New York. And I've also worked on a graduate student's thesis for her physician assistant program. So if you want to seek me out or inquire about my consultation services, just email me. That's the easiest way to reach me at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. That's easy to remember. And tis the season for college admission essays, both undergraduate and graduate, thesis writing, dissertation writing. Um, do you want to create a podcast and you don't know where to begin? Media work, um, how to open a TikTok, how to start creating videos on TikTok, what to do with your Instagram. All of that I have done. So just reach out to me. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm really excited to talk to you all about one of our ITBR sponsors, Broadview Press. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish mainly in English studies, writing, philosophy, and history. They are always publishing with an eye towards diversity, building a strong list of titles from women, people of color, and authors from other marginalized groups. If you haven't heard my Broadview Press interviews, you need to. Recently, I just had on Dr. Shannon Day, who talked about her book, Beyond the Binary, Thinking About Sex and Gender. And in the summer, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who gave us all a comprehensive history of what it means to be a philosopher who studies sporting culture. And of course, we went back to ancient Greek, literature, mythology, history, to look at the roots of athleticism. And... Last year, I had on Dr. Jeffrey Andrew Weinstock, who's actually going to be coming on the podcast soon to give his thoughts on the new Fall of the House of Usher Netflix series. He talked all about pop culture for beginners. And Broadview Press is offering an exclusive discount because of our sponsorship. So head to broadviewpress.com where you're going to see such a wide range of literature. Use the code Ivory Tower, I-V-O-R-Y-T-O-W-E-R -E for 20% off site-wide all of their books. Again, it's broadviewpress.com. Enjoy your reading. I don't think about it that much because so much of what I write about is uh, not based in the present moment so you know i'm taking a historical look at things um and you know there's there's nothing at stake in terms of you know for instance i'm not writing a, a review for the new york times that might have an impact on the show's uh run for instance mm -hmm. so like i don't think about it that much uh that being said i you know i i haven't interviewed friends or uh, 
anybody that I've been super close to for any of my work, although they, they've helped connect me to people. Uh, but yeah, I, I generally, I would, I would try to avoid that as well, just to not be biased one way or the other. Um, so yeah, and that's also, I, I was never interested in having that kind of power that like Jesse Green has or whoever's in that role has, uh, you know, and that, you know, to be a really good critic, a daily critic, you have to be un unstintingly honest and uh, you not couch your your opinion. And I'm so conscious that those words have an impact. And, um, you know, I would, I would, you know, there'd be caught between the the desire to be fully honest, but also not to ruin somebody's sense of self, you know, because if you didn't like somebody's performance and that happens uh, for all of us that, you know, nobody's for everyone, you'd, you'd still feel like you needed to say something maybe. And it just was never my, my thing. Luckily, there are very few jobs <laughs> in that realm. So I wasn't even tempted, but um, yeah. And also because I, I was in theater, you know, to review a show that someone, you know, or had worked with was part of is, is kind of fraught. I mean, as, as an academic now, uh, I don't even like to review books by people that I know more than having, you know, met in passing. I don't want to review a book of a colleague, uh, who's also a friend. I'd rather it be a colleague who's, you know, an acquaintance at best. Yeah. But that starts to get really hard if you're in the public eye, right? I mean, yeah. Like this is kind of why when I have performers on or people who are in the TV industry or film industry, um, like I've had reality TV people on, like if they do make a statement, it's going to get picked up by the press. And yeah. then now you're part of that machine that you kind of know to expect if you're going on a show. Like if you're going to, right, if you're a Broadway performer and they're going to do an interview, like say, um, I don't know. Uh, Betty goes on a podcast or does an interview and then she drags the cast of like mentions the other Sunset Boulevard leads and starts yeah. to like rank the women and says like, well, Patty Lapone's there. Glenn Close is there. That's uh, going to cause a firestorm. So, you know, I feel how do you feel when even Broadway bodies, because I know it did make such it caused a ripple in the industry. I mean, like just seeing the reviews of your book, how did you feel it was received? Like, did the industry itself feel the need to comment and defend itself? Um, interestingly, I haven't heard anything, any, I haven't heard any kind of pushback from people within the industry. And the, you know, the the response from performers has been pretty uniformly positive because I will say part of the reason that I wrote the book was that there are things that we as performers know, for instance, that we are judged uh, on how our bodies look, sound, and move when we enter the audition room, and uh, that a lot of that is openly discriminatory. And so it was important for me to make that part of the historical record. Now, the the only kind of challenging responses that I've gotten to the book, I actually think have been 
fantastic because uh, there have been two instances where I think, um, and I, this is a little bit of a, an assumption on my part, but I think I may be correct um, that the um, two, well, let me not even make an assumption. The only two people who, uh, you know, said anything negative so far to to me about the book and in writing were uh, both white men. And, uh, you know, they, they both said that it was too activist. And I, at first I thought, well, I don't even consider it activists necessarily, although I do at the end of the book write about some activists and advocates. But I actually really think, you know, I think they meant that as a critique, but I actually take that as a really great compliment because it means that the ideas in the book challenged them and mm -hmm. that it hit a nerve. So uh, I can imagine that that is true for other readers who didn't feel the need to tag me on Twitter or, <laughs> or show up in my inbox. But um, I'm grateful for them because I thought, oh, well, this really, this worked. Like that there was something in there that you disagreed with and that's fabulous. Like that's a great response. So um, I'm grateful for for those those men that said I was too activist. Um, but, uh, you know, the to, to talk to the performers who have read the book, uh, I, I think I, I, I get the sense that uh, people feel very seen by what I wrote about. And so that was also important to me too. And that's, that's why I dedicated the book to, I think, I think I said something like to anyone who has ever been told they were too fat, too disabled, too gay, too black, too, too much or not enough in some other way to, to be in a musical, you know, that this book is for them. And so, you know, that's, that's really what, kept me going through the writing of it was that, you know, every now and then I'd hear from a stranger who would say, Hey, I heard you're writing this book and I can't wait for it to come out. And, um, that's, that was, you know, it's, it's lovely, you know, to, to get those kind of messages rather than, um, <laughs> the normal kind of question, which is when is that going to be finished <laughs> or, you know, how's the writing going? Uh, yeah, you know, writing's just—it's. I love it, but it's very slow and methodical, and uh, it doesn't happen overnight. Yes, well, and I love that you start with a chorus line because you have this whole argument in your book that for a musical that's supposed to be about the individuation of each character, right? Yeah. Like Cassie has her music in the mirror number. Um, she like thought she could make it in Hollywood and then doesn't. Um, but each of these cast members, the original cast, I remember they had really long conversations with Michael Bennett and they actually were opening up about their own monologue. So like all this material comes from the original cast stories, which is a very interesting way to bring about a workshop of a musical is that it actually is based in a memoir style. But you say, even though they're so individualistic stories, the whole cast bodies can form together. Like you can't really tell them apart. And I thought that was interesting because, right, you're not those saying, you know, you're someone could critique you and say, well, the bodies might look similar, but you still have different races like for the time in the 70s. It is groundbreaking. You have queerness represented. You have single mothers you have 
different ages, like Sheila in at the ballet. So, you know, how do you balance all of that? Like, can you have a musical that, yes, the bodies conform with one another, but you're not necessarily saying the content and the narrative is homogenous? Right. Well, you know, and in the sense that my argument about a chorus line is about the um, the homogenous casting after the original cast is, I think, holds because I'm not necessarily saying that like the entire cast is homogenous, but that when they went to replace them, which, you know, is a great problem to have because the show is such a hit. It, I think at one point there were six companies playing around the world at the same time. Wow. And, uh, you know, it ran on Broadway for 15 years and it was groundbreaking in all of the ways that you've described for its representation of queerness, for its, um, not even just its representation, but the fact that the, the three gay male characters are full humans. They're not only there for uh, comic relief. Uh, it, it, it touches on questions of disability, on sizeism, um, all the, everything else that I wanted to write about um, is, is right there in this show. And, you know, this was the one um, I did talk to Bayork Lee for the book, who was the original Connie in A Chorus Line and then has staged every major produ production around the world pretty much since 1975. And it was just such a, a highlight of the entire experience to get to talk to her, even though out of all the people I interviewed, I suspect she would probably disagree with my argument about the show. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I found in doing research about A Chorus Line is that yeah, it was it was this family environment throughout its run. And as with any family, there are disagreements. And a lot of people who worked on it felt that it became a, a factory and a, there was a cookie cutter aspect to that. And a lot of people disagreed with that. So, uh, you know, I think that was interesting to to think about and to know that some of the performers in it experienced it as a kind of factory. Uh, I mean, and listen, the Broadway Broadway work doing the same show eight times a week does have that kind of repetitive uh, nature to it that lends itself to you know factory like analogies, and yeah. so it was just kind of you know there on the table, um, and also the well, sense. These and they're not even are, called, oh, sorry, Ryan, and they're not yeah. even a cast member. They're called a track. Right. Yeah. And the, and the, the, that they're interchangeable. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, a chorus line kind of invited that because uh, when it was clear that it was such a hit, Michael Bennett started to rehearse three companies at once, um, one to take over on Broadway, one that would go to London, and then one that was going to open the show in LA and then go on tour around the country. And then they came up with the idea that there should be these kind of, I'm just going to call them like super swings who could just, you know, be flown into any company that needed somebody. And that's a practice that still happens today. I mean, there are, you know, there are performers out there that know a lot of tracks in Hamilton and can just be flown in at the last minute. If, if you know, Alexander Hamilton is out mm -hmm. in San Francisco, they can fly in the guy from New York or uh, you know, wherever. And so a course line inaugurated a lot of these labor practices, including the idea of developing a musical through a workshop. Yeah. So. Well, and like the track. So 
Um, I know there was horror stories from Les Miserables and like how um, like last minute people, like you said, would be flown in or the Phantom of the Opera has a lot of these stories. Um, and I even know that Wicked um, had such, I had Gregory Maguire here and we talked a lot about how his novel got adapted. And he said it was so tense, the creative team, but like, look, they made it on the other side. And I just heard Laura Bell Bundy. She was, well, as you know, probably, she was the original understudy for Glinda. And uh, she said that, standby, sorry, not understudy. She was a standby, um, meaning, right, she had to be ready at any moment, but wasn't actually in the musical unless she had to go in for Kristen Chenoweth. But she said, oh, it was a really, I had heard stories about how um, at odds the creative team was, but she said no production that I've been a part of that hasn't had major creative conflict ever was successful. Like, do you agree with that assumption? I mean, uh, it's just part of the process. Uh, whether the show is successful or not, there's always a moment in the theater where, uh, you know, people uh, butt heads. And uh, you hope that you have a strong, kind director who handles it uh, gracefully, which doesn't always happen, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, people are very passionate and, and also they're tired by the time you get, to, if you're talking about it, like tech rehearsals and everything, and you're doing 10 out of 12s where you're working 10 out of 12 hours a day in the theater and you don't have a life outside of that. Uh, it's a very high pressure environment and it's very emotionally charged. So yeah, it's yeah. just, it's tough. Well, and you look at other musicals and Broadway bodies that are some of my favorites. I mean, Dreamgirls is still my favorite um, music composition. I think it's just from start to finish, one of the most riveting um, albums, not even cast album, but just all the genres and like that mainstream music vibe that it really hits so well. Um, you know, and Dreamgirls, as Effie. I mean, Effie is a plus size woman and Jennifer Holiday owns that part, but it also is what causes the major tension between her not fitting in. I mean, she's pregnant, which we don't really know until later in act two, but, right. um, and I mean, that's not due to her weight, but like, that's where all this internal conflict is happening with her and Dina and, um, right. Dina then becomes the Diana Ross substitute in the musical. Um, so like, what were you finding in dream girls? Like what was really attracting you to that? And in, in terms of body positivity arguments? Yeah. Well, as I started thinking about how I was going to write my dissertation and what kind of theoretical fields I was interested in. I, nothing I had seen yet had sparked for me. And then I started reading uh, disability studies and fat studies. And both of them really spoke to me. And so then I started thinking, well, what are the, what are the music, Broadway musicals that um, include bigger bodies and in and as leads and you know for men it's a little bit different uh, you know there's been more there's been less pressure on on bigger men I think than women you know because our society is so 
misogynist. Uh, but the more I started thinking about this, I, I, I centered on two shows, Dreamgirls and Hairspray. And these are the only two shows that uh, sometimes require a bigger body as the female lead. And, you know, I say sometimes because there's this history of, of not casting uh, plus size women in these parts and both parts, in fact, um, you know, as I found in my research, both parts uh, in both productions, they used fat suits uh, for Tracy and for Effie. Um, and I think with Hairspray, almost everybody wore them. With Dreamgirls, it was very uh, uneven who which Effies wore them and which didn't. But um, I was really drawn to Dreamgirls, uh, I think for the same reasons you are. I love the score. It's a really compelling story. I mean, we know that it's loosely based on the Supremes and, uh, you know, that just has this uh, virtuosic performance by Jennifer Holliday that I was obsessed with, you know, watching the clip from the Tonys, you know, from the second YouTube came out, I just would watch that again and again. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a very body positive show. In fact, it's probably the opposite. Um, so I was interested in that too, uh, you know, cause I'm in, in all of my work, I'm looking at the, the moments of ambivalence and the, you know, the, the kind of the paradoxes of, of inclusion. So, you know, what did it mean to be uh, a young fat white woman and get to play Tracy Turnblad uh, and how that was like, for some people, so exciting well, for all of them, I, th I would say, I think it was so exciting to get that job, but then the bind that they were placed into as a result of, of getting their dream job and playing the lead in a Broadway show, uh, you know, so that's really like where I, I tend to home in on in my work. Well, and something that I find so interesting in what you do is that looking at Hairspray, I mean, kind of leads us to your queer work on the musical theater, because like with the plus size aspect, we also have Edna, who is actually, you know, Tracy's mom, but she's historically or always now played um, by a male identifying performer in drag. Yeah. Like it's a drag queen type role, mm -hmm. but it also has to be a plus size drag queen role. And um, they yeah. were also padded. I mean, they also wore fat suits in the show. I mean, you know, they wanted it to have a kind of cartoony vibe. So on the one hand, I I get it. And on the other, I'm like, but you were casting bigger bodied actors in all of these parts anyway. So why bother, you know? But yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to think that about that aspect of the show too, that there's, uh, it, and that show is is pretty body positive. Um, as far as musicals go, and also, you know, queer positive by having uh, Harvey Firestein originate Edna, and I mean, one of, I mean, it was one of the greatest performances I've seen live in the theater was seeing him as Edna. It was it just he filled the theater with his with his spirit. It was fantastic. Yeah, well, David Armstrong's going to be happy because. He was the original director of Hairspray in Seattle and, uh -huh. you know, um, friends with him. Uh, so David's, you know, going to love your assessment of, but you're <laughs> right. It really is such a powerful message. But again, like you're saying, it's not that you're, you're using 
when you're a musical theater or a theater critic, just like any critic, you have to use certain case studies and use them as a lens, right? Yeah. It's not like you're not putting out these musicals as a ranking of your worst musicals. Like that's a different study. Actually, no. I don't even know. That really wouldn't be a study. That would just be a BuzzFeed article. Well, you know, um, I think maybe to your earlier question about, you know, whether how I choose what to write about and if it when I know someone involved or not. Um, actually, all of the musicals I wrote about in Broadway Bodies are shows that I love. And so I started from there. And um, I think in reading the book, you can see that they're not, uh, the, the love is not um, uncomplicated <laughs> for some of these shows. But even the ones that I kind of critique more than others, I still love all of them. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's no such thing as like the perfect representation of any identity or any group. So, um, you know, I, I was, I wanted the love of them to come through at the same time as kind of the raised eyebrow, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, and most your passion and enthusiasm most definitely does. I mean, my least favorite musicals would not appear in a book or an article. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, and I definitely have a few that uh, one of them in my most recent past that I wanted to leave the theater and I've never felt that before. Um, mm. I didn't leave the theater, but it was... It wasn't an enjoyable experience. Um, it has nothing to do with the performers. It usually never has to do with the performers. Um, yeah. so, so, you know, into peer approaches to musical theater, I mean, it's almost this bridge that you create. And I'm sure this was on purpose from Broadway bodies to queer approaches to musical theater, which is you have this bridge with La Caja Fall, which is a musical that has such a powerful, you know, gay male couple, um, the same source material for the birdcage that everyone loves with Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. But you say people forget that the actors cast in the original Broadway production, George Hearn, and I forget who's the other actor. Uh, it's George Hearn and... Um... Oh, yeah, see, this I happens anytime I try to, anytime we have to like figure out that one name, it'll, it's okay. It'll come to us. Yeah. Um, but Gene Barry, uh, it's Gene Barry, who was thank a, you. a TV star in the eighties. Okay. Seventies, ah, eighties. Okay. So that they were straight actors cast, you know, was that something that surprised you or it felt, uh, no, how, yeah, it didn't surprise me. Only because it's important to remember that in 1983, when they're putting Lacage together, there were no out gay actors who had starred in a Broadway show. I mean, and I mean by out gay actor, I mean publicly out. A lot of actors were out within the industry. Uh, some, I think, were never in the closet. Uh, you know, because musical theater historically was this space that was queer friendly and where you could live a life that was out as as much as it was possible to do so. And it was one of the few industries where that was acceptable, uh, you know, from the mid 20th century on, and maybe even a little earlier, sure. But, uh, you know, so the producers of Lacage, they're mostly, a lot of them who were actually hands-on working on the show were out gay men. 
uh, the writers were all out gay men in their private lives. Um, Harvey was the only one that was out publicly at the time. And, you know, so they, they, they couldn't have found out gay actors at the time if they had wanted to, I think, um, you know, maybe one or two, but it, it just, it, it wasn't even a consideration, I would say at that time. And, you know, this is, this is at the, this is 1983. So, you know, we know that AIDS is happening, but it's, you know, we're not yet at the stage where it's a mass death event, like it's going to become by the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, you know, the 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 last bit of gay liberation is still uh, the driving force of, of queer politics at the time. And all of that, you know, comes into the, the fact that this show was still very groundbreaking, even though it did cast two straight actors um, to play these gay men. So, yeah, and then what I think was really fascinating was that once times had changed and we're in the 2010s and they're reviving the show, when they did cast the show, the first Broadway revival, it had two gay men playing the leading characters and there was nothing in the press about that versus the original production. It was, oh, aren't these two guys so brave for playing these big, you know, drag queens and the drag queen's husband and you know oh they're they're so fantastic and it's so hard to play a gay character and they do it so believably blah 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 well then again in the second revival on broadway which starred douglas hodge and kelsey Grammer, two straight men two openly straight men um they again got a lot of press for you know their how for their performances and you know that oh they're willing to play these gay men and you know, of course, like playing gay has always been such a uh, such bait for awards shows and, you know, the, the Emmys, the Oscars, the Tony. So, of course, they want to play these gay parts because they're great roles. But um, that's what I think was more surprising to me, that when it was more socially acceptable to be gay and, um, you know, we had less legal discrimination than before, um, that these productions sought to distance themselves from it even still you know in the last decade so that was what was more surprising to me than the fact that in 1983 they cast these two straight guys as as the parts are you a fan of lgbtq plus books plays movies tv shows well, then I have the magazine for you. It's called the Gay and Lesbian Review. The GNLR is a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies. Each issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. So I just had on Dr. Richard Schneider Jr., the founder and editor-in-chief of the GNLR, for the GNLR's 30th anniversary. Happy birthday, GNLR. Dr. Richard Schneider talked about their special volume called Outer Appearances, More Faces from the Annals of the GNLR, illustrations by Charles Hefling. They cover 
current LGBTQ artists such as Harvey Firestein, Melissa Etheridge, Alan Cumming, James Whiteside, Alison Bechdel, and even David Sedaris, and of course, many others like Stephen Sondheim. There's even a supplemental issue that comes with your commemorative volume. And Andrew Halloran, the writer of Dancer from the Dance, he reviews a book called Morris about E.M. Farster's Morris, written by one of our ITBR guests, David Grevin. So we can't wait for you all to experience this beautiful 30th anniversary GNLR issue. Have you heard some of my GNLR interviews, including Dr. Andrew Lear's discussion about male-male love in ancient Greek society and Ignacio Darnad opening and blasting the closet door in the queer male art world? Well, definitely make sure you listen to them after this episode. Head to glreview.org. Make sure you subscribe to their magazine. You'll see there's a section that says subscribe at the top. Enter the promo code ITBR50. That's ITBR50 to receive 50% off, 50% off any print or digital subscription. Enjoy your reading. The holiday season may be behind us, but guess what's lurking around the corner? Picture that little baby with a bow and arrow. Yes, Valentine's Day is almost here. And I'm thinking of what gift can I get that my boyfriend will absolutely love and gush over? Well, he is a horror movie fanatic, so I think I have just the thing that he'll die for. Pun intended. My good friend Mandy Bangle is the owner of Mandy Made It, a craft company where she specializes in crochet and cre-cut handmade gifts. So whether... Your partner is a horror movie fanatic. I'm sure that they have a TV show they love. Maybe there's a book that they love, a music artist, a sports team that they cheer for. Mandy has you covered from shirts, hats, beanie hats, which I love to wear at the gym, car decals, beer and coffee koozies, keychains, stuffed animals, signs that you want to put all over your apartment. She is ready to create any customized order. So head to Instagram right now, type in at Mandy made it. That's M A N D E E made it slide into her DMS. And she is ready to start working on your order. Just send her a few ideas. You could say, Hey, my boyfriend really loves horror movies or Hey, my boyfriend really loves the Broadway musical, Wicked. I'm sure she will figure out some concoction for you and say that you heard her ad on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room because she's going to give you an exclusive ITBR free gift. She's also working on a new line of ITBR merchandise, so I can't wait to share all of that information with you. Make sure you mention at Ivory Tower Boiler Room when your gift arrives from Mandy so I can share it out on our Instagram. I hope you all enjoy your gifts. Well, and it's so interesting because Jerry Herman, who wrote the music, um, you know, and I think music and lyrics, but I... Yeah. Okay. Because he also did Hello, Dolly. Um among many others, but uh, that Jerry Herman writes this huge um, coming out of the closet anthem of 
I am what I am, a la I'm coming out by Diana Ross. Like it has that same 1980s energy. Um, and like you said, AIDS is, you know, about to really take hold of the Broadway community, the artistic community in New York City. Yeah. And at the same time, Shirley Ralph is on in Dreamgirls. And what is she doing? She's one of the only actresses. She's opened up about this. I'm sure you know, Ryan, who actually talks about AIDS patients yeah. and the Broadway community. And she actually was really warned by her publicist to stop talking. Um, and she said, I'm not listening to you. And that's why I really respect Shirley Ralph. I think she's been incredible. Yeah. Um, so like, how though did like, La Caja Fall and the creative team, even though you do have two straight actors, because of I Am What I Am and the content of the musical, do you feel like, though, it did really show the like queer culture? It sh showed support and solidarity for what was going on with AIDS. Like, even it surpassed who they cast as the lead actors. Absolutely. I mean, the the and that song took on a life of its own and you know was recorded by everyone from Gloria Gaynor to Shirley Bassey and you know gay divas and um mm -hmm. uh or you know divas to gays and uh so you know the the, the song resonated and you know, Harvey Firestein I think had said that at the time he really wanted the show to be cast with gay men whether they were publicly out or not which they absolutely could they could have done that you know for instance Larry Kurt took over um, at one point as Zaza slash Alban, and he was out. Um, you know, he had been the original Tony in West Side Story, and then was the first replacement Bobby and Company. And you know, he had this long career and um, where he was mostly out. Um, and but he always felt that the show would resonate better, would mean that I am what I am would mean something even more with a gay man, with an actual gay man singing it. And he tells this story, I think in his memoir that, you know, Arthur Lawrence, who was a gay man, fought him tooth and nail over this and said, you know, it doesn't matter the identity of the actor. And then when they did cast a, a gay man as, as Alban, Arthur kind of said to Harvey, well, I think you were right. It does actually add something to the part. I mean, also like thinking about this show historically, you know, in the early 80s, among the mainstream, there was still very much a binary view of sexuality and it, it was gay or straight and, or gay and lesbian or straight. And, you know, the, anything beyond the LG, you know, into BTQ plus, et cetera, like they, it just wasn't, in the mainstream consciousness. And so I think now our understanding of sexuality is so much more nuanced. And um, so, you know, the kind of conversation about should, should only gay actors play gay parts, I think is much more complex a question than people even know they're asking because how do we navigate that paradox now that you know, we we view sexuality as something that for many people is fluid rather than fixed. And and that fluidity is part of is on a spectrum. It's not a binary. Um, so I, I think these these kinds of questions are uh, almost unanswerable um, 
in many ways, which is why they're interesting to think through and to talk about. But like, how would you cast that show now if you were to revive it, for instance? Um, which roles would be allowed to have some kind of flexibility and which wouldn't? So, you know, those are the kind of things that motivate what I wrote about in Broadway Bodies. And then um, queer approaches in musical theater is really intended to be used in uh, undergraduate seminars. And in, in my experience teaching musical theater to undergrads, they tend to know mostly the shows that they did in high school. Uh, and for a lot of them, the oldest musical they know is Into the Woods. Um, so, you know, they, they're really well versed in things from the past 15 years, but, you know, they don't know Cabaret, for instance, they don't know, uh, you know, shows like Gypsy, uh, et cetera. So, you know, the book is really, it's a short little book that's intended for uh, students to be introduced to these ideas and some of the canonical shows like Cabaret and uh, Fun Home and Bacage, um, and to think about ones that are more recent, like Book of Mormon, for instance, and A Strange Loop through through different lenses than simply that of uh, musical theater aficionado, which is, you know, it's to your point earlier, your question about a kind of scholarship versus criticism. There's so many books about musical theater that are just written only from the perspective of fan. And mm -hmm. so it, it can feel a little uh, like, you know, you had to be a cheerleader to write about any anything about musical theater. And there is certain pressure from within the industry when you're writing publicly to be a cheerleader. And, but I didn't feel like that was my job. Uh, to do that and there are already people that do that and so I thought well you know that's not that's not so interesting to me I'm interested in the the, the complicated messy parts and um, so in queer approaches I'm trying to 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 bring that to undergraduate readers a bit and to actually think well hey you know and for instance in the chapter on the Kaj in in that book uh, I wanted to to chart how the response to the show was really different from straight critics at mainstream publications like the New York Times, New York Post, et cetera, Time Magazine, uh, and then how it was received in the alternative press and the gay press. So, you know, things like the New York Native, uh, the Christopher Street Reader, uh, other, uh, the Village Voice, other alternative publications. And, and really it was uh, quite a profound difference because generally speaking the straight critics were like this show isn't gay enough and the gay critics were like thank god for this show i finally you know feel represented and um i don't I, i'm not demeaned by this representation and this was also at a time where um mainstream gay culture was was fairly anti-drag i mean this is not by any stretch uh, this is a pre-rupaul world and you know we don't have drag queens in mainstream culture the way that uh, we do now. And drag was looked down upon even by some people who were doing it. Like Charles Bush uh, wrote in his recent memoir that, you know, he didn't, he never identified as a drag queen when he started doing his shows around this time um, in the East Village. And he always thought of himself as a male actress. 
And, you know, he, he realizes later in his life that he, he said, what an honor to have been included um, among drag queens as one of them. And he, you know, regrets feeling the way he felt, but drag was not socially acceptable in the way that it is now. It certainly wasn't, it was so far uh, in context that it's almost how, how far we've come. It's unimaginable almost, you know, for, for someone in 1983 to, if they could see into the future and see how ubiquitous drag is now, um, I don't think they'd believe it. Uh, among many other things that they wouldn't believe, but uh, you know, the the show was it's radical in that sense too. Um, that it and also like a chorus line, it's you know talk about humanizing someone whose identity is stigmatized. Uh, you know, Lacage did that you know ten times over. Yes. So I will say something that has been my critique recently is not a critique because I am not trying to critique drag queens, but for some reason, queer musicals have been all drag queens. Like I feel like we've gone in the other direction. Like I can't tell you the last musical where there's just been, well, everybody's talking about Jamie was a queer teen musical. In about, the West End. About a boy who wants to be a drag queen. <laughs> wants to be a drag queen. Yeah. Pinky Boots is about a drag queen. Um, Some Like It Hot. It's a non-binary, you know, performer, but it's still about drag. Sure. And I'm just curious, is that because these are translatable to straight audiences and they can't handle, even Rent has a drag queen like, is it because of the spectacle and we can't have nuanced LGBTQ characters like Angels in America isn't about drag. It's about all of these different intersections. And I feel like the plays, The Inheritance, I saw The Inheritance and that was incredible. Um, but I feel drama has a different way of being presented in narratives than musical theater does right now. Yeah, and I, I think two things come to mind the first is that drag is so appealing a because it is palatable to mainstream audiences b it makes them feel comfortable with homosexuality or or queerness you know writ large and then c it's theatrical uh it's a it's it adds another layer of of performance and theater to any show so i think there's that but then as you're talking about the plays that uh, that you that you mentioned, I think that you know since the '80s we we tend to have queer representation specifically about gay men uh, or gay male associated characters that are either about two things: they either are an AIDS story or they are about drag in some measure. Um, and so you know those, those maybe that's a little bit overdetermined, but. Um, Certainly on Broadway, that's what has played. LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? 
or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. I am here in Port Jefferson, New York on Long Island in one of my favorite stores. It is the Soapbox NY a Bath and Body Boutique. I'm here with one of the co-owners, Janine. Hi, Janine. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Thank you. Good. So I know you have many winter scents to walk us through. So let's yes. get started. This is from company Michelle Design Works, another one of our favorites. Room spray that you can use any room in your house, just kind of freshens up the room a bit. And what is this by Michelle Design Also Works? by Michelle Design Works is Winter Blooms, one of their new scents this holiday season. It's great. It's um, a hand wash. You can use it in your kitchen or your bathroom. And then here is something to follow it up with. Exactly. It's a hand and body lotion. And then what is this beautiful decorative candle here? One of our favorites that we actually sell mm. all year round because it's so popular. This is the scent of Fraser Fur by Times. I think I'm becoming addicted to it. Yes. I think you are because you already own one, I believe. I own one <laughs> and it is a decorative handle for me because I'm about to open it, but it's just in such I know the package a beautiful is, package. I don't know what's better, the packaging or the scents. I'm using it wonderful. as a holiday decoration. So cool. I'll get to the candle eventually, Thank everyone. You know. But it's wonderful because with Times and their Fraser Fur, not only do they carry the candles, but they also make it in the scents in the diffuser, in soap, the hand lotion, the, um, the hand soap. It's just a great line and a great scent. So Janine, how can everyone out there get their hands on your hand and body and even pajama products. Well, we'd be more than happy to see you in our shop. We're located at 18 Chandler Square in Port Jefferson Village. You could always call us to place an order. We're happy to ship to you. Our phone number is 631-509-1424. You can place an order on our website, soapboxny.com. And you could also find us on Instagram or TikTok at the soapboxny. So many options. Mm -hmm. I can't wait for all of you out there to just enjoy what I love so much about the Soapbox NY. So with yeah. that, thank you so much. Happy winter, everyone. Imagine that you're riding the Turner Classic Movie Great Movie Ride in Hollywood Studios. It's in the 1990s. As you're journeying through the Great Movie Ride, you pass the Wizard of Oz where all of a sudden you see the Wicked Witch of the West ascend into Munchkinland in a cloud of smoke and flames. Well, 
that's the memory I have with the great movie ride in classic cinema when I was at Disney in the 1990s as a young boy. And ever since that, I was hooked on classic cinema. Well, my friend Christian Garcia, friend of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, has a podcast that you all are going to love. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and he looks at queer themes in classic cinema, like Vertigo, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, Mary Poppins, 101 Dalmatians, Hello Dolly, the list can go on and on and on. So follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. You can listen to his podcast on Apple and Spotify. And he also is on the premiere episode of our Queer as Folk podcast, where I'm re-watching every episode of Queer as Folk from 2000. And the episodes come out bi-weekly. So make sure you listen to his episode with me. And he's launching a rewatch show of Smash, where they're putting on a Marilyn Monroe musical. So he's going to be joined by co-hosts, a lot who are in the Broadway and theater industry, and I'm going to be on his first episode. So without further ado, get listening to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. Enjoy. Trying to think of other counter examples. I mean, maybe like you get now and again, you get a revival of a play like The Boys in the Band, which is, you know, from the late 60s and has uh, nothing to do with AIDS yet. And um, I think does reveal yeah. the attitudes toward drag queens, though. But um, yeah. well, that's a Stonewall play. Yeah. I mean, responding to Stonewall. Yeah. We just kind of get, uh, you know, a narrow range of queer representation on Broadway. Um, and, you know, there, there has been so much representation, uh, almost over-representation of, of gay male characters and so little of anybody else that, um, you know, I think as a result of that, there's a lot of pressure and expectations on those shows that are representing the rest of the queer umbrella beyond uh, just gay. And, you know, so even I'm thinking of shows like and Juliet or Jagged Little Pill um, that are trying to introduce, um, you know, non-binary and, and question characters questioning and figuring out their gender. And, um, you know, they become kind of social media landmines if a performer misspeaks about it and, um, or says something that, you know, the creative team wasn't ready for them to say, like in the Jagged Little Pill case. and. Um, you know, it just becomes this kind of hot button issue and that people feel very passionately about. Um, and then on the other side, we still have this trend of drag and you know, kind of absent queer characters now, like in shows like Mrs. Doubtfire and Tootsie, you have these, you know, straight cis men putting on mm -hmm. uh, female drag. And, um, you know, and now in in the 2020s, a lot of people view that as transphobic. And so, you know, we're the, they're, they're always kind of walking this line while trying to appeal to mainstream ticket buyers. And, you know, for Broadway audiences, that's mostly tourists. And that's why we get shows like Doubtfire and Tootsie that are based on beloved movies um, because the, the, they have name recognition. So, uh, yeah. it's it is just a curious trend though that there is this uh there's this spate of musicals that uh are are drawn to that 
trope, whether in terms of queerness or not. I mean, Harvey Firestein has publicly said he didn't write any gay characters in Kinky Boots and, you know, not even Lola. So um, that's also an interesting conversation. And, uh, you know, you do want to take him at his word, but I think if you saw Kinky Boots, you would never know that, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. I also feel like they're missing out a lot right now on Broadway of like doing gender reversals of iconic musicals. Like I've always thought I saw Sutton Foster's going to do Once Upon a Mattress, but I really wish there was a gay love story of Once Upon a Mattress. Like, I don't know why they didn't cast a male comedian to do it and like have Dauntless fall in love with the princess who's a prince. Like, yeah. just because... I think some musicals, you can take chances like that or even, but they do. I think they're starting to try to do that with even Town, right? Lilius White took over, yeah. um, you know, from Andre Shields. So like there are some roles where you can almost Tempest style or like Shakespearean ways of doing a gender reversal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, I do want to ask you though, is there, as we're nearing our end, is there anything on your radar, like in terms of queer representation, you know, even though you do like have your critiques about Rent, Rent to my mind is one of the most intersectional musicals like that I can bring up in our public consciousness. Like Collins is gay, you know, there is a, you know, drag queen, but even like she may be um, transgender. It's not really the terminology isn't there with yeah, Angel. Right. But, you know, what's happening in our current moment? Is there anything on the horizon that is breaking through, even though we have such a commercialization issue right now on Broadway? I'm not sure what's coming to Broadway that's going to break through. I mean, I just saw that there's a play coming from London called My Son's a Queer that, yeah. you know, played the West End and it's going to open this spring on Broadway. I'm actually, what my mind goes to first is the fact that uh, Fat Ham, which won the Pulitzer, is now going to be produced at regional theaters all around the country. And that's a, a queer Black resetting of Hamlet at a, you know, at a barbecue in North Carolina or, you know, or the South, you know, but I think it's North Carolina. Um, and... Uh, you know, the fact that that is going to be done all over the country, I think, is probably more interesting and impactful than what's going to be done on Broadway this next season. Um, I'm trying to, like, thinking of what shows have been announced, that, you know, in terms of musicals, there's there are certain advances, you know, being made, like this, the the musical that features the cast of actress on the spectrum called How to Dance in Ohio. I'm particularly looking forward to that. But in terms of queer representation, I don't think there's a ton on Broadway. And I wonder, you know, it's many factors, but uh, it's what producers think is going to sell, which shows are in the pipeline. But um, I think the failure of a show like Some Like It Hot to run longer than it is than it will by the time it closes um in in the winter is uh hopefully not a bellwether for what's going to happen because you know there is this fear that if like if the shows that are 
inclusive of, of multiple kinds of queerness, not just, you know, the typical gay man or the drag queen, but in this show, you know, which features um, Jay Harrison Gee as uh, Daphne, I believe is the character's name, the non-binary character in that, you know, there's the fear that if something like that fails, it, it makes it harder for the next mm-hmm. show like that to, to make well, it. Or because that is backed by Mark Shaman, do you think that's just teeing up Smash, which is coming down the pipeline, which will have definitely inclusive queer characters? Um, I have a feeling maybe Smash is going to take its place, but that's just my own insider (laughs) knowledge of what's happening right now. Yeah, I mean, they've been developing that for Broadway for years. So, uh, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, I hope so. Well, and The Wiz is going to have, um, you know, Wayne Brady as the wizard. So I don't know. I think we have, yeah, like you said, the the regional atmosphere, I agree with you. I think there's a lot. Well, and I don't think we can push aside the backlash with LGBTQ issues across the country that even though it's in Manhattan, Broadway, it like you said, it's affecting the whole tourist industry is centered on Broadway. So, you know, thinking of who's actually coming to buy tickets. And in terms of, you know, queer representation in theater, a lot of shows around the country, non-musical and musical are being censored and canceled and uh, the production's canceled. And, uh, you know, it's, it's high schools, it's community theaters where there, there are, in, in certain states, there there's there are outcries about representing the fact that we exist, right? And uh, you know that's very disturbing, uh, and it's um, it's raising awareness and visibility certainly, but um, I think it, it in particular it puts such a a burden and a stress on the young people involved in those productions, um, and uh, you know. Unfortunately, they're getting uh, lessons in, uh, I don't know, how awful the world can be at a young age, you know, in in those cases. But uh, on the flip side, they are learning to advocate for themselves and Mm -hmm. um, to stand up to that kind of bigotry. So, uh, you know, it's, it's increasingly a contested time to be uh, queer in America. I mean, not that it's ever not been contested, but, you know, there was a brief moment where I think people breathed, queer people, uh, took a breath for a second and, um, you know, we're, we're not in that, in that space any, any longer. So, Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're seeing that in, in the, in the pushback to our existence, um, and our representation, and inclusion in plays and musicals. So that's why I think something like Fat Ham, you know, playing all around the country is is enormously important. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, and I definitely want everyone out there to, you know, get their hands on Broadway bodies, on queer approaches to musical theater. I also have a Smash podcast series on here. And it is fun to like return to those narratives and like how it took chances in different conversations. Um, But 
TV and film, I will say just from like all the analysis I'm doing, I feel like TV and film right now has made a lot of advances, especially TV and streaming with what you can get and the content yeah. in queer representation. And Broadway is just a whole different um, financial industry. Like they have so much, so many more backers to answer to in terms of how they're even going to pull this money together is, you know, there's only a few theaters that are in the Broadway area that you can yeah. actually have a show at. Um, right. And a theater is slow uh, to develop. It, it generally takes uh, a few years to get a show to Broadway. And, you know, the writer needs to be enormously networked to get it in front of the eyes of the right producers and director. And you're right. Broadway, Broadway is about real estate. Uh, you know, there are, a few groups of landlords that own all of the theaters and they want shows that are not only going to run a long time, but have a, a high ticket price, um, you know, so that they get not only their rent, but their portion of the box office. And, um, you know, so their interest is in, you know, in that, in the bottom mm -hmm. line, not to say that they aren't interested in artistic, matters as well i think you know it's a balance for them that skews a little bit more towards the bottom line but um you know broadway is and always has been and always will be a business and you know so i think that you know even though i write so much about broadway musicals and broadway theater that it's it's we we don't do ourselves a service to look for uh, to look at that as the barometer of our uh, work in representation or uh, elsewhere, because because of this this capitalistic this nat the nature of the business and um, the fact that the producers are always going to go for what they think is going to appeal to a mass audience. So yeah. you know that that doesn't have anything to to do with uh, our 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 actual value. <laughs> yeah, well, and to actually get the audience's butt in the seat is so much harder than going to even a movie theater in your town. Like, yeah. there's a lot more um, to the journey. And, you know, you can't just bank on NY, like New York City metro area people to see Broadway shows. Um, like, they're only going to be your base for a few months, maybe. Right. But yeah. Yeah, so I'm so just happy we had this conversation, Ryan. It's been, you know, such a pleasure to meet you, to like hear about your research, your topics. Um, hopefully, like I'll have you back or I can convince you to be on the Smash show. We'll see. <laughs> um, you know, if you want to return to Smash, I'm not sure how long it's been since you've seen it. Um, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, so... This is just great. I have the links to Ryan's books in the show notes, and I definitely will make sure we have more musical theater conversations. I am even planning to bring um, a group to see Wicked. So I know all about, you know, ticket prices and they've gone really high. And like since the pandemic, things have just shot up this last year. Um, so, you know, hopefully they make their money back. That's my goal. Um, but yeah, Ryan, where can everyone follow you, find you, all the, you know, channels that you're on? Uh, 
Well, I, I kind of weaned myself off of Twitter. Um, and so now I'm on blue sky and I, but I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm questioning my own relationship to all of the, all of the social media. So the best place to find me is on my website, which is just ryan-donovan.com. So okay. you, can, you can find more things about me there. <laughs> good, good. Okay. Well, thank you, Ryan. And, you know, I really appreciated just your transparency and, you know, us appreciating theater, but also being able to critique it at a distance is healthy, in my opinion, um, like any art. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And thanks to the audience out there for listening. And I will be back again with another conversation soon. Okay. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you.